Welcome to the Mountain Brook Baptist Church podcast. We pray that this message will help you in your walk with Christ. And a big thanks to you, uh, the parish here at Mountain Brook Baptist, and uh, to Wayne and Mary. I'm just so grateful. And you, you realize as you age that you're, you... Um, begin to falter with language to express the kind of feelings that you have as you grow older. I've been at Beeson Divinity School long enough now to see peers and friends and students go off and, and pastor and serve our Lord, and it is, it is a wonderful privilege. I'm, I'm humbled, and I'm, I'm glad to have Wayne as a friend. I'm going to read Isaiah 53 um, to you today. And it's a longer reading than we've had, so... Um, brace yourself. And it's a hard one. It's a text that we know well, um, but it, it is, it's a hard text. Who has believed what, we, what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him at all. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with Grief, he's as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. If I can gloss that verse a little bit for you today in a way that might be a little bit more hard-angled. It was the delight of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for his guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied, and by the knowledge of him shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Oh, Father, how can it be that you have shown to us such amazing love? In this quiet afternoon hour, in the middle of a week that's thrusting us through the reality of time to Friday and then to the hope of Sunday, would you quiet our hearts and open our minds by the power of your spirit to behold the wondrous beauty of the cross once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Habakkuk the prophet says, The Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let all the earth keep silence before him. In Micah's prophecy, he tells us that when God judges the world, he leaves his holy temple and he plants his foot on top of a mountain. And when the Lord places his foot on a mountain, the mountains begin to melt like wax under the heat of his judging presence. The creative forces that hold our world together at its very basic structural level begin to come undone. Mountains are melting. The earth is quaking. The sun is going dark. The presence of God's judging self is mysterious. It is tremendous, and it strikes fear into the heart of every living creature. That's why Habakkuk said, let all the earth keep silence before him. It's not a new thing to see the powerful unveiling of God and his saving, redeeming, and judging self to take place on a mountain. Mountains, for whatever reason, seem to be the location of choice because they hover somewhere between heaven and earth. God stops Abraham's knife from falling on his son on top of a mountain. God reveals his name to Moses on top of a mountain. The Lord delivers the law on top of a mountain. He threatens to destroy his people from a mountain. He defeats the satanic powers of Baal and his followers with Elijah on top of a mountain. And Jesus allows his own eternal glory to be unveiled just for a brief time on a mountain. But following Christ to Mount Calvary is unlike any other encounter that we have with God on a mountain. We follow this broken figure outside the city gates, heading to a hill that amounts to nothing more than a city dump. And once again, God is stepping from his holy temple, planting the foot of his judgment on top of a mountain, like Micah said. But the scene's all wrong. Up is down, and now down is up. Our understanding and our assumption about how God works in the world is riddled now with confusion because the very God who left his holy temple in an act of judgment upon the whole world is the selfsame figure that we see hanging on a beam suspended between heaven and hell on the top of a mountain. And that broken and bloodied figure that we see is the judge. No one in the course of humanity... No one throughout the cosmic reaches of our universe has a better claim as the judge of the world than Jesus Christ. Because we've seen him. We followed him through the Gospels. And we know by his words and by his actions that this human, this true human whose blood is palpably present at this scene, is at the same time the one who stops the winds, calms the seas, raises dead people from from the dead, and forgives our sins. He is Jehovah come off of his throne. He is the judge. But at this scene on this mountaintop, up is down and down is up because it's the judge, the true judge, the only judge who could judge in the words of the Psalms with equity and righteousness, with healing in his wings. It's now this judge who is the judge being judged in our place. How do we make sense of what we're seeing with this bloodied figure on a cross? Where do we go to fill out our understanding of what we're beholding? And few texts offer a depth of understanding 
like Isaiah 53. Despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, we hide our faces from him in an act of natural human repulsion, innocent yet suffering, and not suffering, by the way, in the abstract. Suffering and wounded, Isaiah 53 seems to say over and over and over again, because of our sins and our transgressions. Isaiah 53 contrasts the depth of our sin against the horrific backdrop of the servant's suffering. We've lost something, I believe, in our moment of the depth of human sin. We, and I'll put myself in this category as well, we tend to think primarily in therapeutic terms about our maladies, maybe our internal disorder. At a basic level, we all want to be happy. We want to live a well-adjusted life. And religion can play a role in a well-balanced life, a kind of deep exhale in the face of life's challenges and in my own internal unrest and disorder. But sin is so much more than a malady in need of therapy. It's our basic instinct as creatures to choose the promise of the fruit over the gift of the Creator again and again. Man cannot live by bread alone, Jesus counters to Satan, and he said so in full knowledge that our basic instinct is to choose bread, to choose the material world again and again in the face of God's offer of himself to us. And Isaiah labels that with a particular term at the beginning and the end of his book. Isaiah calls it rebellion. It's a, a defiant hand in the face of the living God and his love for us that says time and time again, no, I'll take the bread, I'll take the fruit. I'll take this creaturely thing, but not you. And God, in Isaiah 53, demonstrates that he won't leave us to our basic rebellious instincts against him. Isaiah 53 ushers us into the Holy of Holies with Christ, suffering for us because of our iniquities, because of our rebellion, because of our upraised hands. Sin, says Karl Barth, in its unity and totality, is always pride. It's at the very heart of what it means to be a sinner. And you are one. Just ask your spouse or your colleague. And I'm not talking here about haughtiness, per se, when we talk about human pride. The, hey, come take a look at my new car. Or let me tell you in an indirect way about the accomplishments of my children. Uh, or the myriad of ways that we hope people take notice of us and our achievements. We're haughty, I do that too. But I'm talking about something more pernicious than haughtiness talking about human pride, human self-sufficiency, human self-autonomy. I'm talking about our continued belief that we can get by in this world on our own. Every breach of God's law is an instantiation of our pride. No, my way is better. And by the way, I'm not saying that we're always conscious of this, but it's at the very core of our being as sinners. We're prideful. We eat the fruit. We build towers. We craft idols. 
molding our way through this world, often unaware of our true identity. We're filled with pride, and the cross undresses us. The cross, as the backdrop of our own sin, reveals in very uncomfortable ways who we really are. The true humanity of God is on display in its glory and wonder, and our distorted humanity is on display too, sinful and warped by human pride. But remember, this is up is down and down is up on this mountain. God's wisdom is our foolishness. His beauty can be revealed in the ugliness of the cross. And he puts an end to our human pride by the ultimate act of his own humility. Think of this. Human pride dealt a death blow by the humility of God. It is finished, Jesus said. So what we see in this horrific scene before us is the foolish wisdom of God on display. To the world, to its organizing principles, this is utter foolishness. But for God, it's his eternal wisdom that's on display for us. We see the horrific and yet ugly beauty of God. And what else can we do but turn our faces hiding from the whore? He's the one from whom people hide their faces. There's nothing beautiful about his appearance. He's bruised and he's marred. He wheezes under his own heavy struggle for breath. It's awful. But in the ugliness of the scene is the hidden beauty of God. In the ugliness of the scene, God's love for sinners like you and me is painted with brushstrokes that are big and and beautiful. And as we contemplate the bloody canvas, the loving smile of God envelops the whole scene. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the delight of the Lord to crush him. Let the weight of that sit on you. It was God's delight to crush his own son in an act of utter humility and humiliation so that our pride, my pride, our sin, our rebellion, could be obliterated once and for all. In a sermon that I discovered on my shelf many years ago by Jonathan Edwards, he gave this quote, and I've gone to it again and again over the years. This is what Edwards said, Christ's soul in the Garden of Gethsemane was so overwhelmed with a deluge of grief, but this was from a deluge of love to sinners in his heart, and listen to this, sufficient to overflow the world and to overwhelm the highest mountains of sin. Those great drops of blood that fell to the ground were a manifestation of an ocean of love in Christ's heart. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In John's gospel, we're told that the night before Jesus died, he prayed. Jesus ends all of his ministry before the cross with a high priestly prayer. And here's how the prayer ends. I made known to them thy name, and I will make it known even more. I have made known your name, and I will yet make your name known. Jesus is making a claim here about his own sharing in the very identity of Israel's God, of God's being. I have revealed to them who you are, but I'm going to reveal to them even more who you are. And in the next verse, he's in the Kidron Valley, praying in a garden, 
and then being arrested and on his way to his bloody end. So I think we can read into Jesus' statement here that if we think we know who God is, our knowledge is insufficient if it does not include, if it's not framed by the events that are about to transpire during this holy week. Our knowledge of God is insufficient if it does not follow Christ to the place of God's foolish wisdom, to the place of God's ugly beauty, to the place where up is down and down is up, to the place of judgment where the judge is judged in our place, to the place where the ocean of God's love and mercy swell over us at the point of horror. Jesus is telling us that we may, we may think we know God in his name. You may think we have a handle on God's power. We might think we have a notion of his ability to see all and to do all. And we have, may have very good answers to the basic questions of God's godness. But if God's godness does not have Good Friday at its very center, then our understanding of God is bereft at best and pernicious at worst. What is God like or better who is God? The basic question that orders all other questions about our lives and our world. Who is he? How can I pick him up out of a lineup of other gods? To answer that question, you'll have to follow him outside the city gates to hell on earth and to see our suffering Savior. You'll have to be introduced to the Lord who became a servant. You'll have to observe again the judge who's being judged in our place. You'll have to see a carpenter's son whose swollen eyes are filled with compassion and love. You'll have to hear a weak and battered man whisper for the forgiveness of his killers. You'll have to watch a dying man ask for a drink of water. You'll have to see a suffering son caring for his hurting mother. You'll have to see God's son cry out in despair because his eternal fellowship with his own father is in some mysterious way broken. You'll have to stare into the sin which is your very own being hoisted onto his shoulders of the only one able to bear it for you. You'll have to hear the suffering man's desperate and triumphant death cry. It is finished. Do you want to know who God is? You'll have to go to this mountain with me and behold something horrific and something beautiful in the suffering one. And having loved his own, John tells us, he loved them to the very end. Or in Isaiah's terms, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And through him, the will of the Lord will prosper. Friends at Mountain Brook Baptist, I hope you never lose a sense of wonder when it comes to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our understanding of time itself is forever altered at Calvary's Hill because before and after are almost like a double helix that now wraps around this defining moment in the history of humankind, in the history of eternity itself. And words, of course, fail us at this moment. Speech at this moment becomes necessarily silence. And that's why Habakkuk was surely right when he said, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth 
keep silence before him. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. We pray that today's message brought you hope as we continue to love God and live with grace and generosity. Be sure to check back here for more podcasts. And as always, go out and do the Lord's good work. Thank you.